gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you need this. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. My the remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're going to be talking about B2B marketing lessons from Nike's Objectify Me campaign with the help of our special guest, Senior Director of Brand at Axonius, Kitty Rosa. Look at me. Study me. Understand me. I'm not a small pink version of a man. Don't give me small pink versions of a man's running shoe. I'm Lauren Fleshman. I'm a runner, and I'm a woman. Katie, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on the show. We're going to chat all about how you think about brand, about content, about marketing. We're going to talk about Nike. We're going to talk about running and everything in between. So why did you pick Nike's Objectify Me campaign? I picked this campaign because it really resonated with me as a, you know, as a marketer first and foremost, but also as a as a woman and as a runner. I love the story behind this campaign. Meredith, what is Nike's Objectify Me campaign? Nike's Objectify Me campaign was a 2007 ad, and it features pro runner Lauren Fleshman. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire for this show and many other shows at Caspian Studios. So it's a 30-second black-and-white slow-mo video of Lauren running towards the camera, and we hear Lauren's voice, and she says, Look at me, study me, understand me. I'm not a small pink version of a man, so don't give me a small pink version of a man's running shoe. I'm Lauren Fleshman, I'm a runner, and I'm a woman. And then it shows her running out of frame and the Nike logo pops up on screen. As it is, it's a really understated ad, but it actually deviates super far from its predecessors. To give you a little bit about Lauren, she's a decorated distance runner. She won five NCAA championships at Stanford and two national championships as a professional athlete. Um, She's also a writer. She's been in the New York Times and Runner's World. She's now a brand strategy advisor for fitness apparel company Wazelle, and she co-founded a natural food company, Picky Bars. Her book, Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World, came out in January of this year. And so this campaign was a result of many, many conversations between Lauren and Nike. Lauren was a Nike athlete at the time. She was about 25 years old, and she was noticing that Nike wasn't featuring their athletes in campaigns. So Out of frustration, she made an appointment to talk to Nike's CEO, Mike Parker, um, to just talk over like options and her ideas. And then it brought up some opportunities for her to actually be featured in some of Nike's ads. But the first brief presented to her was of soccer player Brandi Chastain, who is bent over and naked in a tasteful nude photo. 
as people know, so often in our culture, the sign of really making it as a female athlete is being in Playboy or the ESPN body issue. And they were sort of presenting Lauren with this opportunity to be this first poster child for women's specific shoes. But she was kind of taken aback that this was what they were presenting to her because she thought that it was taking a step back from where she thought running and professional sports should be going. But she didn't really feel like she was in a position to turn down this amazing opportunity. This is a huge company. Could she actually say no? But she came back with some other ideas and she said she'd never been so nervous in her life as from when she typed up her response to the CEO. And so when she was thinking about it, she said if she was going to be objectified in this way, she wants it to be from the purpose of creating products for her actual physiology, her physics, her body in mind. It, the result of making invisible our different, our sex-based differences results in harm. It's not harmless. There is actual harm in ignoring the ways that we're different. And so what was interesting was the Nike team actually listened to her and instead they sort of collaborated on this idea and decided that instead of being naked in her ad in her campaign, she would just be standing there in her athletic wear. And this was for the poster version. There's a video campaign and a poster version. So she'd be standing there in her actual athletic wear instead of naked, standing, not bent over. And she's standing very powerfully, like she's got her arms crossed. She's got this attitude of like, I'm an athlete. And she changed this language from like Nike objectifies female athletes to first person. So it gave Lauren agency over the ad to talk about how they are objectifying her as an athlete, as in like making specific products for her that take into mind the shape of her foot and the way that her feet land when she runs and how her hips are wider. And so it totally, again, deviated from the norm or the typical ad featuring female athletes like they did with Brandy Chastain and made it much more powerful, gave her agency, and really empowered her as a female athlete. We are for sure having an enormous fulfillment of a promise that sport can bring us, but it is capable of so much more. And I want to help remove these very movable, in my opinion, barriers to the most women getting the most out of the sports experience possible. And one thing that I think is important to note is that this was the the, the shoe she was wearing and the shoe that this ad was for was the first ever women's shoe made by Nike. So I think that knowing that layer on top of all of it really, to me at least, made it that much more powerful. Yeah, the thing that jumped out for me in the ad is the line of, I'm I'm not just a small pink version of a man because my wife hates the color pink and... I have been shopping for whatever it is, golf clothes, and it's always impossible to not find something that's pink or like teal or, or you know, like baby blue or whatever. It is like always a point of frustration. And this is, you know, <laughs> as a man just trying to shop for her for, for presents, stuff like that, or, or shopping with her. What a perfect call out to pretty much the entire, you know, running world, the athletic world, all of that, that for the first ever Nike women's running shoe, that it's not going to be, you know, the way that it has been done. And it's personified by her saying that it's just like 
this is who I am. And it's just really brilliantly done and brilliantly read by her. I guess at the time, the saying, at least when it came to like women's athletic wear, was to take the man's version and shrink it and pink it is what she says in the book is was the phrase shrink it and pink oh my it. god i've never yeah. heard that i hadn't either and i was like oh that's horrifying <laughs> yeah you know it's one of the things about marketing and one of the things about i'd say nike specifically that they don't you know shy away from a fight ever even when the fight is with themselves and i think that that's you know it's admirable on on nike's behalf in one way but obviously problematic in the way that it's how it got to that point, right? You know, it's like clearly no women were consulted in the, in the making of this stuff uh, forever. I didn't really know the history of like Nike's women's wear and how they started marketing to women. But in the early 2000s, before the ad, before the shoe, they opened like women-specific locations of Nike and it was called Nike Goddess. And as she describes in the book, when they went to decide like the store bills out and like the look and feel and do the branding and design for the space, they brought in men and had the men tell them like what the women would want in a store and like what would make them more likely to buy. And I was like, couldn't you have just like asked women? <laughs> but <laughs> it seems so simple. Yeah. <laughs> And also just, I'm like, that wasn't that long ago. I know, that's what I was going to say. So like, this is not that long ago. This is yeah. extremely recent. When, when they brought up the timeline, I was like, oh my God. I guess I didn't really realize that they weren't marketing to women at that point either. And it was crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it is crazy because, I mean, and again, maybe this is just as a dude, I never even considered that like all the Nike Just Do It commercials and all that stuff. It's miraculous, marvelous, supremely fit. When we sport Nike, we know that we're winning. Too chill, crazy. Like, I can't remember a time, and I was like relatively youngish, so maybe that's why, that in the 90s that like there weren't women in Nike ads. So that part of it was just really interesting to me to learn about. And I definitely remember the objectification piece and that sort of like being a, I don't want to say talking point because it, I don't think it was at all until, you know, this campaign came out and she's clearly making a stand about it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I was, you know, I think like middle school at that at that time frame, the early early 2000s, middle school and high school. And I don't remember them not marketing when I look back on like being a kid, not marketing to women. But on the other hand, what I do remember from Nike as a kid are the like the Michael Jordan ads, you know, and that type of that type of stuff. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I led you to believe it was easy when it wasn't. Maybe I made you think my highlights started at the free throw line and not in the gym. So I guess had I not read this book, I would have been like, oh, I just don't remember the women. I just don't remember it. And in reality, they just they weren't there to begin with. What was it like for you going back and re-looking at this ad? I think hearing the entire story behind it really just like opened my eyes. You know, it's there's always so many layers to campaigns and so many things behind the scenes that, you know, we as consumers and, and we as the audience don't see, whether it's, you know, hidden meetings or here's how this this came to be in the first place. And I think there's a lot of depth to the marketing and the branding that is done well. So to to review it with this whole story, I mean, in her book, she spends 
a lot of the book kind of teeing up to like, you know, here's my relationship with Nike and yada, yada. And, and then a whole chapter dedicated to just how this campaign was born and what she did, how she kind of flipped the script on what it was going to be about. And it was just, I feel like fascinating to go back and, and reexamine things under a different lens or with the perspective that you have, you know, what was that, 20 plus years removed to, you know, to really fully understand the magnitude of it. I mean, it's pretty timeless, right? I mean, if this ad, they could run it tomorrow. I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think that's also probably why it resonated with me, because we've clearly come a long way since she did this ad. But everything she's talking about is still completely relevant. And honestly, in light of the recent, you know, atmosphere over the past few years, maybe even more relevant than it was at the time. If we show emotion, we're called dramatic. If we want to play against men, we're nuts. And if we dream of equal opportunity, delusional. I think it resonates with more than just runners or athletes or people, you know, people who are active. I think it has a much broader scope than it than it did back then. Yeah, I think the beauty of of the ad for me is that it speaks to a larger group of people, women at, women at large and a societal, and, and again, not to everyone, right? Like you can feel however you want about things. If you like the color pink, that's, that's fine. Shout out my niece. She loves the color pink. That's all good, right? Like if, if that's what you want, that's all good. But the idea that like there is an actual option for you now in which there wasn't ever before, I think is a pretty universal truth. And then it also specifically talks to runners in a way that I think is really, really unique, specifically runners that are trying to go run and want to be objectified based off of how fast they are, right? Like that's that's a very different thing than, I don't know, a makeup ad or something like that, right? Something about beauty, which is essentially what she's rallying against, right? Is the idea of looks versus talent, I guess. And I think- one of the things that it does so well and and something that in general with branding and marketing that really keeps me inspired no matter what I'm working on is the idea of doing the opposite of what's expected. She got the brief. It was, you're going to be nude. You know, we're going to oil you up. You're going to be wearing the shoes and only the shoes and whatever. And she literally did the exact opposite of that. And I think so many marketers and so many brands look at what they're doing and look at what their competitors are doing. And there's a lot of like, me too, right? There's a lot of that, like they're going to copy it and try to make it their own and, and look very similar. And to me, what inspires me the most is looking at what your competitors are doing and doing the exact opposite. And that's something that, you know, on my marketing team at my company, that is kind of almost our brand ethos, really. Yeah, I it just made me think like she is doing the opposite of what had been out there, but I, it was also not just the opposite, but grounded in her values. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, like how to ground your your marketing in like really strong values. I think that's what really resonates with people. Yeah, I think people latch on to authenticity of brands, right? Like that's what drives you emotionally to a brand is that it feels authentic, it resonates with you. 
And I think living and and breathing your values in everything you do, and if you're at a company with a culture that encourages that, that ties your values into everything you do, it almost comes naturally. So like I think of the, some of the stuff that we're working on, our main value at Exonius is growth. And there's kind of, you know, sub values within that. And months before we really had established our company values, we were already tying to that growth messaging. And that was something that as a as a startup, as a young company, we were still establishing, you know, what our values were, but we were already living and breathing what they were, whether they were written down or not. And anyways, I think that that good marketing and good brands tap into those values and do it in an authentic way. Like if you're shoehorning it in and you're really just kind of pushing it, it's going to feel inauthentic. It's not going to feel organic. And I think the key there is making it feel organic in a way that ties back to your own values and the values of your of your brand. I think that one of the ways that Nike was able to outsource the authenticity piece is she wrote it, Right. She's the one who created it. It's her voice. It's not theirs. Obviously, I'm sure it's all brand approved, but like that is her thoughts. So how can you not be authentic, right? And that, like that is, I think, something that as marketers, we always want to control the narrative and we want to control the aspect of it. And we want to do sort of like what we think is right. And sometimes you need to let your customers control the narrative and you need to just let them say it in their words and say what they would like to say and see if that matches up with what you want to send out there like you know i mean how many customer stories have we done where we go to a customer and say what do you want to say and you you know ask them about a bunch of stuff and you pick and product a few different things and and then they come up with something absolutely brilliant that you could have never written i mean i think that's a great takeaway by watching this is just let people say it in their own voice yeah, that's that's so true. And it makes me think of in the campaign that I'm currently working on, we've had a couple different spots within it. And actually, the last one and the upcoming one, there's a lot of just like natural conversation in it. And, you know, you still write the script and what you hope the storyline is going to be in advance. And as I was writing the script, I literally pulled from previous conversations I had had mm. with them that we happened to have the transcripts for. And I was like, all right, I want to have this message, but how did they deliver this and what words did they use and made sure that the script reflected that? I think there, there's like what you had mentioned, a very valuable lesson in listening to your customers and letting them speak for themselves. That is Colin Stamps, our podcast launch manager here at Caspian Studios and our marketing aficionado. I think especially in the B2B world that we're all in, I'm actually shocked that there's not more of this. Obviously, there's you see customer testimonials and customer stories and case studies, et cetera. But there's something about just listening to their story and like relating to them on a human level that's so powerful. And I think that that is, to me, what, along with so many other things, what makes the, the Nike campaign so powerful when I see it. Agreed. And I wonder if we're going to see more brands, especially, you know, those in the B2B space, tapping into the power of customers, especially in the current economic climate, you know, like I've had a lot of people say, you know, okay, cool. You've done this campaign with a celebrity. Like I don't have that kind of budget. What can I do? And I think any budgets can accommodate, you know, whether you're working in a bootstrap company or, you know, publicly funded company, 
any budget can accommodate your your customer. And there's a real value in bringing your customer into your marketing, not just from the brand, you know, the authenticity aspect of it, but also like there's value to them on a personal level. If building their own personal brand and establishing themselves as, you know, a subject matter expert and somebody of authority on the topic is something that they strive for, then like that's kind of a win-win situation. And you can create like really solid customer experiences around it as well. So imagine if Nike sat down with Lauren and gave her the shoes and said, go on a run. When you come back, tell me how it was. Tell me how your feet feel. How did it feel after mile one? How did it feel after mile five? How did it feel after mile 10? Did these feel different from other shoes that you've worn in the past? It would have been completely forgotten by history, right? And you would get in essentially a features and benefits conversation as you would with any other pair of shoes. But the point of the Nike ad is to get you to go to a store and try on those shoes, right? Because any any runner is going to go to the store and they're going to try them on. And if they hate them, they're going to take them off immediately. It doesn't matter how good the ad is, right? Like it does not matter what the brand stands for. It does not matter how cool the ads are, how cool the campaign is, how cool they look. No runner is buying shoes that way. They're buying it how it feels on their feet. And the point of this is to get you to try it, to say, I want to try this new thing. And it aligns with me in some sort of way. And I feel like Nike, we, you know, we always talk about how great they are at, at advertising, but this is like, a perfect case study in that of like, they never talk features and benefits. It's always aspirational. It's always thought provoking. And it's always something that leads with the athlete. And I think that that, you know, depending on what your goal is with, with your marketing, I think if you're doing a high level brand campaign, that should be the approach. It shouldn't be, let's sell you all the features and benefits. Like you said, it should be, let's get you in the store. Let's get you remembering who we are so the next time we come up that you need those new sneakers or that you need a b2b you know SaaS solution what have you you remember the ad and clearly people remember the nike ad clearly it worked i mean we're sitting here you know 15 years later talking about the ad and it's not necessarily like the greatest creative, you know, that's out there in terms of the photography. It's a great photo, but it's not the photo that makes it memorable. It's the copy combined with the photo and the, and I think the story behind it. Yeah. And I think that if you start with the brand essence of a campaign, you can layer in product and feature details, right? I think later on with features and benefits that can, that can nest into the campaign. But if you start with the overarching emotional hook, then you can get someone to to try it. Like, I, you know, it would be a really interesting thing, which we can't do right now, but to compare this to like when the, they launched the Nike Freeze. Because I remember like those ads where they're like twisting the shoe in half and like bending it all in half and like doing all this crazy stuff where it's so much about the shoe, about this like new kind of shoe, whereas this is kind of the opposite. So anyhow. No, I, t- I totally agree with you though. And, and, you know, earlier you asked about bringing like values into an ad. But I think that there's ways to, in the same way that you bring values in, right? You're not going to sit there if your value is growth. You're not necessarily going to sit there and talk about growth and why it's important to, you know, you as a person or your company or what have you. You're going to talk 
higher level and messages around growth that resonate and, you know, yada, yada. And you can do that, I think, with your product features. Like if you boil it down high level, what are your key benefits of your product? So for us, we're a cybersecurity company. One of our key values that we bring someone, you know, really bare bones, super high level. If I'm explaining it to a third grader, what would I say is we give you a foundation uh, of everything you have in your security environment. And tying it into the campaign that we've been working on, we weren't going to go and promote the product in this campaign. We wanted to tap into people's emotions. And the first iteration is all focused on these themes of foundation and themes of who's around you and who are the people who are your foundation. And we don't ever talk about the product. We don't ever show the product. We, you know, barely show Axonius at all. It's in the background, like on a water bottle at one point, and that's about it. But it ties to everything that we do regardless. So zooming out, what is Axonius and who do you sell to? So Axonius is a asset management company for cybersecurity and IT professionals. And we sell to, to cybersecurity and IT. So, you know, usually directors, CISOs, heads of IT, heads of security. And what size companies generally? We typically sell to larger organizations because as your company grows and as you add more people to your company, you have more and more devices, whether that's your, you know, SaaS apps, everything that you might log into via Okta, all those various tiles or actual devices, your computers, your phones, et cetera. When you're a small company, you don't necessarily, you can track that a whole lot easier, right? But when you've got thousands of employees across the globe, it, it becomes a whole lot more complex. How do you think about your brand strategy? You know, really, really high level. Our goal as a brand is to obviously, you know, position Exonius as a leader in the space, of course, first and foremost. But the way that we do that is doing what others in our space haven't done. And it seems it seems obvious to me as as a marketer that telling human stories with real humans it would be a great way to you know, accomplish our goals and, and work in our, our brand messages and whatnot. But it's not really done in our space. So most cybersecurity companies are leveraging, you know, military grade and tanks and mechanical birds and no one's telling stories, no one's using people. So we saw that as an opportunity. You know, we had just remessaged and really tapped into a message that ties broadly into the human experience as well as our product. We kind of ran with it. And then how do you think about like the ROI of brand, the ROI of content? I think, you know, on, on the content side of things, it's it's a lot easier to draw a direct line from content to revenue. But with brand, obviously there's a lot more layers, right? It's hard and, and difficult to find that direct line to revenue. So what we're really looking at, at least at, at our company, is, you know, landing page performance, time on page, views, overall brand recall and recognition rates are some of the key performance indicators that we're looking at. Tell us about the Controlling Complexity campaign. Complexity is everywhere. Instead of avoiding challenges or fearing failure, I've learned that you have to focus on what you can control. In work and in life, when that noise and chaos try to creep in, I choose to stay true to myself and remember who I love. That's how I control complexity. 
Yeah. So our controlling complexity campaign, we had this opportunity to humanize cybersecurity and tell some stories. And we said, cool, let's use real people to tell real stories of how they overcame complexity in their own lives. And at the time, it happened to be the Tokyo Olympics were happening. So Simone Biles was very, you know, front and center on the public stage. And we looked not at her performance, but about everything else that was going on, right? Where she, you know, got the twisties midair, you know, realized that her mental health was struggling, opted to kind of walk off a very public, you know, global stage. And then we knew her backstory too. So she's came from foster care, you know, it wasn't like she grew up in this incredibly privileged life by by any stretch of the imagination. Like she had a kind of a rough go of it early on and and overcame that and does a lot of work with foster communities now. So this was our first attempt ever in dipping our toe into branding. Before that, we had done like maybe a sponsored podcast ad or two and thought that was like really cool. So we were like, go bigger, go home. Let's reach out to Simone and we'll see what we get. And they responded. And and kind of going back to brand values and, and all of that, the way that we, you know, hooked, if you will, Simone, was we sent a video talking about this campaign of ourselves tied in, you know, we've got someone on our team who is a foster parent and has adopted kids and tied his story into it. And they'll tell you, you know, like her agent and, and Simone will tell you that it was that video, not necessarily like what we were doing, but the video that really kind of sold her because we just came across as humans. So yeah, so we're working on this campaign with her, and we've got three iterations of this, uh, you know, three different films that we've been doing. The very first one is all about foundation. So how is she controlling complexity in her life? And for her, it's her family. She's very, very family-oriented. And when she's got to overcome tough situations in life, she relies on her family and those kind of like in her circle to help guide her. And as I said earlier, foundation ties back to what we offer as a product. We give you a foundational knowledge of everything that's in your cybersecurity environment. And then the second iteration focused on adaptation. Everybody thinks they know me or who Simone Biles really is. Adaptation is adapting to whatever's happening around you. So kind of with this vision in mind of when the best are faced with enormous complexity, they not only find a way to adapt to the challenge, but they find a way to give back. And that focused on her giving significant gift to Friends of the Children, which is a, a organization that supports foster kids and sets them up with mentors. And that ties back to Exodius in that by knowing what's in your environment, we help you adapt to those challenges. And then this next iteration, which is coming out really soon, is all focused on growth. So we believe that complexity is inevitable, but growth is optional. It's a choice that you make. And when you're faced with a situation, you know, when you're faced with complexity, you have to adapt to it in order to overcome it. So that one, we actually, you know, a little teaser is that it features an Exonius customer a cybersecurity professional, and an Exonius employee all alongside Simone. So it's the first time that we're really talking about cybersecurity directly within a film with Simone. Yeah, that's really cool. How has, how has it been received so far? It's been received really, really well. And you know, it's like you have kind of like press go on it and we, we pressed go on the first iteration and you're like, I know we've got 
really good creative here, but is it going to resonate? You know, it was really nerve wracking. It's the biggest thing we've ever done. It was a multi-million dollar campaign with Simone Biles. Like if we flopped, it would have been a flop on a very like public stage within cybersecurity. And since launching the campaign, we've increased our brand recall 122%, which I'm incredibly proud of. And we've gotten tons of word of mouth too, right? Like if you go and look at our Salesforce chatter notes, there's a lot of they mentioned they found us through the campaign or the camp, their, their kid is a, is a gym, gymnast and they thought it was so cool that we're working with Simone. And same with new employees. We've got, gotten quite a few new employees because they saw the ad first. I think that, especially in cybersecurity, in, like you said, where everything is shields and protect and castles and, and armor and, and all the stuff that you mentioned, choosing a gymnast is, is probably about the furthest thing from that. And it's just such a, you know, brilliant encapsulation of like humanity and complexity. And I, I even love the the name of the campaign because that's what we're all trying to deal with, right? It's uh, controlling complexity. That's what being a, a CISO is or being an IT. And also just like being a human being, right? Like it's this whole campaign and this messaging really was born from the second law of thermodynamics, which is essentially that as things grow, as environments grow, they only become more and more complex. And we launched the campaign essentially asking, we were like, everybody is going to be saying, what does Simone Biles have to do with cybersecurity? So that was the copy on the first ad that we went out there with. And we've never answered it. And we answer it in, the, in this, this final iteration, which wasn't actually planned. We just kind of like came around to like, oh, hey, this is the last one. Like it innately based on what the spot looks like and, and what the spot does, it innately answers that question. What does she have to do with it? And I think... It all boils down to, as human beings, like it's a universal truth that we're all trying to control complexity, adapt to the situations in front of us and grow from them. Katie, why do you think it is important to like zig when everybody else is zagging to do the opposite of what other people in the industry are doing? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that that's the stuff that people remember and that's the stuff that stands out, right? And as a person and as a marketer, I've always been really drawn to brands that take that approach. So for some context, early on in my career, I worked for Virgin Pulse, which is one of Sir Richard Branson's portfolio companies. And I think the man is a, like him or not, he's like a poster child for doing the unexpected. And I think that's what people remember. And every company I've worked at thereafter, we've taken that approach. I mean, at, at my last company before Axonius, I was the, one of the very first marketers and we were literally choosing our color palette and we chose it by looking at where our competitors were on the color wheel, and we said, okay, we're going to do the exact opposite. And I just think that those that's what is is memorable, and that's where storytelling really comes alive when you look at what's out there and say, okay, we're going to do something that, you know, for lack of a better term, is disruptive, is different. And I think that you can do that on any budget, really. It doesn't have to be. There's so many amazing opportunities that are really like grassroots marketing that stand out on a bootstrap budget. And I'm saying this now as somebody who works for a, you know, well-funded organization. And obviously we, we've got Simone Biles, so we, we've had the budget to do some really amazing things. But I also have worked with basically no budget at all. I've, I've worked at a bootstrap startup and had to stand out as the challenger brand. And to me, that's like what gets me out of bed in the morning, right, is like working on those campaigns and working for those brands that really want to just kind of like shake things up and do things differently. 
Yeah, I, I think there's also just a really important piece there about creating a moat for yourself. And, you know, we always talk about our marketing strategy at Caspian about, you know, fight where you can win. Like you want to create places and do things that nobody can copy. And so I think that it just makes you stand out and it's doing something that A, nobody else is doing and B, no one else can copy. Yeah, that sums up perfectly. And I think it's just the unexpected is what stands out. Awesome. Wonderful, wonderful having you on the show, Katie. You're so cool. Love following along with Axonius. We're going to follow along to see all the cool stuff that you're coming out with. People can go to the website. We'll link it up in the show notes. Uh, Any final thoughts? No, thank you guys so much for having me. This has been so fun. I love talking about this ad and hope it inspires other people to look into not just the ad, but also to look into their marketing and their branding and content and see how they can shake things up. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios. B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, Colin Stamps, our podcast launch manager, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.